0: Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapters 1 and 2. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God
1: Last week we finished off our summer of discernment. I was not here, but throughout the summer we were in a process of trying to understand God's call for us as a church, but using a devotional guide that was trying to enable you to seek God yourself and listen to God and understand God's call for you personally. Over the past few weeks, our church Um, has been going through a process of continuing that discernment. We had discernment gatherings where about 50 people participated in sharing what they foresaw God doing or they saw God doing in our church, both in our our calling and in our identity. Um, We had a gathering of our council and former council and staff uh, to reflect on what God is doing and where he's calling us. And one of the things that I think that um, has become clear is that we want to emphasize um, extended family. And so we're gonna actually talk about that. That's one aspect of our vision and values. We talk about being a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia. That extended family is one aspect of who we are seeking to be as a church community. That it wouldn't just be a place we show up on a Sunday morning and then leave, but that we're involved in each other's lives in various overlapping circles. So that if somebody enters here, they don't just find a church, They find family, community, friendships. We realized it needed to be an integral part of our future in the next 10 years, and it's not going to be solved simply by program alone. So we're going to solve it by a sermon series. (laughs) Corky, you're still on. We actually uh, did a series on this back in 2014, and we used the book of 1 Corinthians back then as well. And I looked back at that five years ago and thought, my goodness, it's actually been a long time since then. Many of you were not here five years ago and a part of this church community. But this summer, what we're gonna, or this summer, this fall, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians as a discussion partner, and we're going to use this devotional guide that's similar to the one we used in the summer in order for you to seek God and for us to seek God together. So that's what I want you to do, but it's seeking God with a purpose. What does God want to do in your relational life? So as a church, if we're going to have a better, deeper, wider community, it's going to involve you and me having deeper and wider community. It's you and me developing friendships here and outside of that and pushing in deeper, spending more time with one another and learning how to do that in a way that five or ten years from now you have a deeper and wider set of friends, of people in this church and in the wider community that you say, I have this relational circle and these relational circles. And so we're going to spend some time looking at this Um, because I think it's a a critical time in our culture to do this, not just because our church, I think, is being called to it, but one of the reasons I think our church is being called to it is because we're in a unique cultural moment. We've talked about it here at Christ Church Vienna. We are in what many of you guys know is a very fractured society. We are more divided, polarized, atomized, whatever all those terms you want to use, than we have ever been. Politically, socially, pushed into little sects, Things like social media and what you watch on TV and and where you spend your time and your education and which coast you're on or the middle ends up making us a very, very divided people. We're also, as we've talked about here, incredibly transient. People do not live in the same place for 20 or 40 years. And we're increasingly isolated as a society and as individuals. According to studies that were done by uh, Duke University on the U.S. Census as well as Cigna Health Insurance, one-fourth of people in America live alone. That's more than at any other time in history. A few years ago, we passed the threshold of over half of adults being single. That had never before happened. Back in the early 60s, over 70 percent Over 70% of people, adults in America, were married. Now over half are single, and that will continue to be the case. We're going to be an increasingly single culture who live alone. And then the the rates of loneliness have been reported and talked about as an epidemic, a health epidemic even. A little under 50% of Americans describe themselves as feeling often alone and left out. So just under half of all Americans feeling left alone or uh, feeling left out or all alone. A little over half say no one knows them well. Over half of Americans say they do not have someone in their life who knows them well. And 25% of Americans, adults, say they have no one to confide in. Now if that's true generally, that's also gonna be true here. You know it, you feel it, or you felt it. You can actually feel that aloneness even in a family. You can feel that aloneness in a crowd. So I think there's actually a missional aspect to cultivating a deeper and wider community as a church. In the coming years, more and more people are going to be looking for a place to belong. And as many pastors have noted, and I've said it here before, it's increasingly the case that belonging precedes belief. So 30 or 40 years ago, somebody was presented a message about Christianity, they decided whether they believed it or not, and then they would join in a church. And so you had to have a convincing argument, you had to be able to argue in in logical terms and be able to present the proofs. That doesn't matter as much anymore. What matters is authenticity. What matters is whether you have humility. What matters is whether you can extend grace. People wanna find a place where they can belong And then they'll open themselves up to whether they are willing to buy into what you believe. I think that if we can create deeper community, circles of community, of friendships, it will be an increasingly, increasingly powerful draw to those who are looking for both belonging and belief. And there's a personal aspect to it as well. Look, there's a benefit to you and me creating better friendships. Did you know that we're actually made for relationships? That's the whole story of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 and 2 lays out that God created us and it was not good for the man to be alone. So he sets Adam and Eve together and they become one flesh. They are naked and unashamed, which meant that they were able to be completely open and trusting and loving with one another. Nothing to hide, nothing to be defensive about. They had complete unity and it was meant to be that way for all of humanity. And ever since the fall, when we rejected God, our relationship with God was pushed off, and our relationships with one another have been pushed off. And since Adam and Eve, who hid themselves, blamed one another, were defensive and guarded, covered themselves up, and didn't worry about the other, we've been doing the same thing. We do it with our families, our spouses, our parents, and we definitely do it with those outside. And yet, each of us deep in is looking for Eden, relationally. That's why we get caught up in romance, why we're desperate for best friends, because we're looking for an Eden that we can't quite get a hold of. There's a missional aspect to deepening and widening community, and there's a personal benefit to it as well. We are made for this. I believe a church that lives out the gospel-driven extended family calling that I think we're called to will be deeply appealing to people in our society who are created for community but are increasingly isolated and lonely. But here's what I would say is I think it's actually hard for us. You can be in a good church like Christ Church Vienna and still not have deep community or relationships. And it's hard for us because the way that we live our lives in the modern world You know, we're independent people. We value freedom and we value liberty, which means I don't want anyone to have a say on my life. That natural leaning towards independence actually pushes us against having community because in some ways to be friends with somebody is to give up a part of the control on yourself. To get married is to do that for sure. God calls us to interdependence, but we are so wired for independence that we push against relationships. And on top of that, the whole economic system here in the, in the modern West actually pushes us against community. And I'm not, I, I like our modern economic system, but it's not helpful for friendships and community. You're going to make a decision on what school to go to because of you. You will have career choices generally based on what you want. You will do with your money what you decide to do. You will decide uh, where to buy a home or who to get married to on your own. All of that do- is done independently of others, and we don't need each other. We live independently. We advance our careers independently. We create families independently. We move houses independently. And yet we want friendships. In a traditional world that we can't go back to, people live in the same place, They farmed the same land next to people that farmed the land, and they worked together. Their economy was interconnected. Their homes were interconnected. You had built-in community, whether you liked it or not. We have to work harder at it. We are independent. Our whole system pushes against it. And honestly, you go through seasons of life when it's harder to make friends. I've been finding recently as, I'm, as my kids have grown up, seeing that I need to keep looking out because um, as your kids get older and my kids are just a couple years away from having all my kids out of the house, then it's not as easy to make new friends. Look, when they're all playing on the soccer field together, you can get to know the other parents. You show up at the elementary school and there's the other parents. But without that, oh gosh, I, gotta, I actually have to start working again. And I get it, you go through seasons of life when you're isolated because you have small kids, a baby at home. It's easy to get isolated as you get older. But I think in whatever season of life you are in, God calls us to value relationships. People matter. Yes, your career matters, people matter more. Your money matters, people matter more. And so, this fall, we're going to be looking um, at 1 Corinthians, and what I want you to do is to do a little bit of hard work, self-examination. I want you to audit your relational world. Do I have deep friendships? Could I go deeper with them? Have I closed off my circle of friends? Could I go wider? How does God want me to cultivate relationships with people in this church community? in order to create a deeper and wider fabric of friendships and interweaving relational community where everyone could find a place to call home. I also want you to look at the gospel and think about how what God says about who we are challenges our values, the things we think we need, our definitions of success, and reorients them both around worship of him as the true Lord and around emphasizing people over everything else. And then my call is that we reorient our lives a little bit. Choose one or two things. A different rhythm in your life, a priority that steps up and another one that steps down. Commit to some people or getting together with them in order to elevate relationships in your day-to-day life. And the reason why we're going to use 1 Corinthians is because the church in Corinth, according to 1 Corinthians, was a relational mess. They they were a nightmare of people. They they had divisions and factions between different different parts of the church. It was like the Corky faction and the Johnny faction and the Rod faction and we were all like fighting each other. We do actually have that here, so we got to work <laughs> on that. We're going to get over that this fall. They they had people who uh were eating food that was offensive to other people in the church. They had rich people uh, showing off their richness while poor people were actually hungry in the church. They had uh, people who had charismatic expressions of their faith, kind of feeling superior to those who didn't. And then there was sexual impropriety that was all messed up within the church community, ruining the kind of relational networks that were there. They were a mess, and it's a good backdrop to see how God wants us to really live the relationships that he's calling us to. And so we're going to use 1 Corinthians as a discussion partner. In the midst of all of this, what we're going to find, and Paul starts this off, and it's our emphasis this morning, is that the gospel is key. Jesus Christ crucified is essential to the kind of relationships that God is calling us to. You can attempt to get there on your own apart from it, but there's something unique that the gospel enables that changes you and me and enables us to become friends in a way that is not going to be as possible apart from the gospel. You see, the, hu- the gospel requires humility to believe. The humility the gospel requires to believe and the grace that the gospel offers us is a power. It is a power that enables us to love people. A kind of love that is counter to our culture's isolated and increasingly divided storyline. So take the time this fall with me to let the gospel sink in. If you've never really bought into it, examine it and say, Do I buy into this, Jesus Christ crucified? If you've already believed it, let it sink in deeper. Let it push into your economic choices, how you do daily life. What does the gospel, a Jesus Christ crucified, have to say with how you relate to others? and then apply it again and again and again with your spouse, in your interaction with your mom and dad, how you treat that other kid at school, the way you deal with the person across the aisle. 1 Corinthians is what we're going to be looking at, and it's a great backdrop because Paul gives us his thesis statement, which we didn't read in verse 10. Paul says, here's the thesis statement. Here's what I'm writing this whole letter about. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, implied, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Why does he have to urge them to not have divisions? Because there are divisions. You guys are a mess Let's get it together. God calls us to unity as a body of Christ. And there we get very clearly, most every New Testament letter is written because of heresy, false teaching, wrong doctrine. First Timothy, Galatians, essentially Romans was probably written for that reason. All these letters, 1 John, were written because there was heresy and bad teaching, bad doctrine. But 1 Corinthians isn't really about the bad teaching. It's the bad relational practices. It was a sociological issue, not a theological issue. And that's why this is such a perfect backdrop for us. Paul lays out that in order for them to have unity, they need to understand the power of the gospel and the centrality of Christ crucified. We see this in verse 27 and 28 when Paul is carrying on this whole story about how the cross, the whole story of Jesus Christ, is foolishness. Basically, if you're an average Corinthian person, a Greek person, a Hellenized person living in the Roman world, the cross of Christ was a bad idea. It makes no sense. There's nothing about your natural upbringing or the way you think about things that would say a crucified Messiah is the way to go. But this is why Paul says it's so important. God chose, verse 27, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Paul is suggesting that Jesus Christ crucified, the gospel message, is a message of weakness, of foolishness, and that salvation is for the people who are weak, who are despised. People who are, who are the not in people, The Corinthians lived in a city that was a prominent economic center in that ancient world. The people there were, there was a lot of wealth in Corinth. They valued wisdom and education. They upheld success and public honor. They were constantly promoting themselves. The main thing they valued was status, which involved having wealth, and influence and honor in the community. And they wanted to have that so much, it's what they valued more than anything. So their cultural assumption was completely contrary to the gospel. What Paul does not do is Paul doesn't come in and say, hey, let me convince you why Christianity is true or why it fits in with your views of wealth and honor and status. Instead, he throws it upside down. He says, this is what your culture values. The gospel completely upends that. It says that the God of all the universe humbled himself. You want honor? Your Christ was crucified on a cross naked, fully ashamed. If you're going to believe in this Jesus Christ, you're going to have to get over all of your cultural demands and submit them to the cross. The cross, Paul is saying, is foolishness that shames the wise and educated and talented. It is a message of weakness that shames the strong and the powerful and the wealthy. It is a message for the low and despised, overthrowing fame and popularity and being in. And the gospel overturns not just the Corinthian culture, it overturns every culture. Every culture is challenged by a cross. A cross puts to death every value and assumption that we bring into it. And Paul says instead, you need to boast in something else. In chapter 2, or at the, in verse 29 and 31, we read, the reason why Christ has done all this and what's going on is so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's quoting directly from Jeremiah 9 that Cote read that says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let's see, jump down to the next verse, the next slide. But let not the wise, let let not him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So Paul is saying this is a a culture that self-promotes, that always wants honor and wants to be in the presence of everyone seen as better than other people. And Paul is saying don't boast in whatever it is you think you're good at, your wealth, your education, your fame, your popularity, your family of origin. There's only one thing to boast in, and that is the Lord. And specifically, it's Jesus Christ. Now, when we think of boasting, we think of somebody who is brash and bragging. Like, you see it on a football field every day, you know, this Sunday afternoon, somebody scores a touchdown, and they, they look like they're showing off, they're bragging, right? And sort of in our head, we think, okay, I don't do that. I'm not that guy. I'm not a boaster. I don't brag. But the term that's underneath this, this term boast, is not about necessarily just showing off and bragging. It's what you glory in. Glory is a key word throughout the Bible. To boast in something is to take pride in it. It's to put your confidence in it. It is where you derive your sense of meaning and your source and your sense of worth. It's you saying, I am somebody because I went to this school. I am somebody because my kids are not a mess. I am somebody because people like me. I am somebody because I'm a phenomenal whatever. Whatever you put your trust in, where you find your meaning, your identity, that's what you're boasting in, whether you're doing a touchdown celebration every time you do it or not. And Paul is saying, when we do this, when we do this, we destroy our relationships. And you know, we see this too, like we live constantly comparing ourselves and whatever it is that you put your hope in, right, you boast in, whatever you boast in, you're going to be constantly feeling superior or inferior to other people, right? So if you, if you get your, your sense of meaning and identity and worth because you're the person that everybody likes, and then all of a sudden somebody enters, moves into the community, and people really like them, you feel completely threatened because you're knocked off your pedestal. Maybe you're no longer the one that everyone likes. Maybe she is. If you were the best person in your office, and then all of a sudden somebody else enters who happens to be better, you're completely thrown. We walk around with a constant sense of superiority based on whatever it is we care about, or inferiority because we're not living up to our own standards, or comparing ourselves well to others. When we put our hope, when we boast in anything but God, every person becomes either a threat or a commodity. They are a threat to my standing and I have to keep them down, get rid of them, or avoid them. Or they're somebody to use to to fill myself up, to compare myself to, to step on to get to the next place. Paul says there's a whole other way and that is boasting in the Lord. And he talks about it more explicitly in chapter two You see, Paul entered a culture that loved traveling speakers. They valued entertainment and philosophy. Paul walks in and says, I didn't come to you as a great entertainer. I didn't come to you with all sorts of philosophical ideas. I came to you humble. I kind of stumble in my speech. I'm not a very good-looking guy. And and I just told you about Jesus Christ crucified. And then I, I used the power of the Spirit to show you that God is alive. Because I don't want you to put your trust in me. I want you to put your trust in Jesus Christ. He's willing to admit his weakness. He's willing to admit his shameful side. Because his boasting is not in how people view him. It's not in his oratorical skills. His only boasting is in Jesus Christ. He could have come in and said, you know, I'm actually very highly educated and I'm a Roman citizen and I've traveled the world and I'm actually smarter than you realize. But he doesn't, because that doesn't matter to him anymore. His past pedigree, his educational standards, all the things that are a part of who he was that he should have boasted in, he did not. He boasted only in this, Jesus Christ, verse two. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When we live apart from the gospel, when we do not boast in Christ alone, relationships break down. You know, all of us desire to be known and loved. We all desire to be known and loved. It's deep within us. But we all have a sense of nakedness and shame. We all know that we have weaknesses and failures and sinfulness and things that we've done that we're embarrassed by or ashamed of. And so we're constantly hiding ourselves, blaming others, feeling defensive, keeping distance from people. The gospel says Christ took our shame and he covers our nakedness. That on the cross, he bore all of our sin. And when we come to God, we come not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of his death for us. And we are completely loved, completely accepted, completely known, completely welcomed. when we realize that, that we are covered, that we are loved, that we are known, we can finally love widely and generously and fully. My goal for us this fall is to renew our patterns and priorities around the gospel. And for you and me to deepen and widen our relationships with one another So please take the devotional guide and use it once a week, five times a week, and spend time seeking and listening to God. Let the gospel approach you. What does God have to say to you? How does he want to lead you? How does he want to change you? What is God saying about your current priorities and values? And what in your life pattern gets in the way of relationships being foremost? Who is God putting on your mind? Who lives right near you or sits near you in church? Who do you think you could invite over? And what is God calling you to do to commit to relationships with other people? At Christ Church Vienna, one of our goals is to be an extended family, and so I want us to push our relationships a little wider. If you know five or six people pretty well in this church, aim to know seven by the end of the the fall here. And so I'm going to encourage you to be a part of small groups. You know, small groups are one of the ways that you get to know people over time. We do fall and spring small groups so that if you've been in the church for, for three years, you'll know 50 people a little better. And that becomes a part of a wider network. Show up at an event like the picnic last week or the women's fall kickoff tomorrow or the men's on tap that comes up. These different events are a way to just get to know a few other people. It widens the circle and and connects the fabric of this church community. And if you have a wide set of friends, go anyhow so that others can know you, not just for yourself, but for others. I might even encourage you to do something we did when we did this series five years ago, which is occasionally change seats. So I know that's scary, and some of you that is terrifying. So you stay where you are, and if literally 10 or 20 of you did this, even just once this fall, you'll get a new perspective. Sit on the opposite side, come forward or go back, even if you do it just once. There's a couple in our church uh, that does it pretty regularly, and what's interesting is I pretty much know when somebody's visiting or new. Corky pretty much knows when somebody's visiting or new, and this couple is the only other people in our church that know because they move around enough to recognize when somebody is new that's a part of interweaving our church community. Do it just once. Maybe even stay once this fall for coffee or stay two minutes longer than you normally do. Maybe, maybe even commit to this church. Become a member. Do our gospel and life study and say, you know what? I'm going to commit to this church. Our aim is, a, <laughs> is to take the, the wider community and push you into a smaller community and so that you can find friends. It's to go from the city to the neighborhood to your close friends. But we cannot force it. I need you to step in and to help weave the network of these friends here. And so not just wider, but I also want you to go a little deeper with your friends. So start with this. Who do you already enjoy? Who do you click with? Who is easy for you to connect with? Good, keep spending time with them. Don't let good friendships fall to the wayside. They will not build themselves up. And ask, can you go deeper with those good friends? Bringing faith, or your struggles, or your fears, or even expressing your needs to them. In those closer circle of friends that you have, renew those relationships. Commit to spending time together over the next few months. Maybe even this, just very simply, ready? Eat food together. Do you know there's a sacramental nature to food? Food is integral to creation and to human nature. And it's meant to be relational. God regularly uses food to reveal himself. Where were Adam and Eve put? They were put in the Garden of Eden. Garden implies there was food and it was plentiful. And where does the whole story end? at the marriage supper of the lamb, a meal. You start in a garden, and then you make the food and end up at the feast. The story of redemption is the story of God taking people out of Israel on a Passover night when they ate a meal together, right? And then as they were in the wilderness, God showed his provision for them by giving them manna, which was food. And then when Jesus was going to reveal himself most fully to his disciples, It was over a meal, eating and drinking together. And that's the beauty of the Lord's Supper and doing it weekly as we do. It's bringing to bear that food together, Christ in and with and for us today. I actually think just if you'd committed to eating with people regularly, it would be a significant strategy for us becoming an extended family and being more externally focused home hospitality and meals. Inviting people to your home, inviting them into your life and entering theirs, saying yes when they invite you over. And then meals, whether that's in your home or at uh, Cafe Amori or the Vienna Inn or, you know, whatever. The Lord's Supper every week is a part of that. Uh, one person in our church talked about uh, years ago Christ Church Vienna had donuts every week and we were known as the donut church. I would be okay if we built on that and we became the eating church if people said, oh yeah, that's the church that people eat together all the time, it would create the sort of community that people are desperate for because community is built around there. There's a spiritual element to it, a sacramental nature to it, a powerful element to eating and drinking together. I believe Christ Church Vienna is being called to Cultivate Community in the coming decade. And this will take each one of us seeking God, being changed, and learning to value friendships in a new and deeper way. Our love for one another and our gospel-driven friendships will be an increasingly powerful way that God reveals himself to us and to a skeptical world in the coming years. Let's pray. God, you created us for community, but because of our sinfulness and brokenness, we live apart. By your grace, by your humbling and death, You have reconciled us to God so that we are fully known and fully loved and we can open ourselves to know and love others. Give us the courage to examine ourselves, to look at the world around us, and to open ourselves to one or two more people this fall. And weave in this church a deep and a wide community, an extended family of friends who love each other and reveal the goodness of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.